those tough times uh, make you really enjoy, you know, the beauty of the position as well. So it has to come with it. The pain, the bruises, the shock, it's all part of the equation. Welcome to the Lax Goalie Rat Podcast. Every week, we'll be talking shop with lacrosse goalies, coaches, and special guests. This is the Lax Goalie Rat Podcast. Now your host, Coach Damon Wilson. Aww, yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, goalies from around the world, welcome to the Lax Goalie Rat Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Damon, and this is a podcast 100% dedicated to the lacrosse goalie. And on this show, it's my job to track down the best goalies in our sport. Find out what makes them so great. What are the stories that they have? What are the drills that they do? What are the mindsets that they talk about that you can use in your own lacrosse goalie game? My guest on the show this week is one of those greats. It's Brian Carcaterra, 1998 Goalie of the Year with Johns Hopkins. We talk about Brian's career growing up, his family, his 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 childhood in York, a, a real lacrosse hotbed of the time, and some great stories along the way. Brian is an awesome guy, a great goalie of his time. We got a, he sent me a bunch of awesome clips of him running around super fast, super athletic, like the goalies of those era. I was a goalie of that era, but I don't know if I was as fast and quick as Brian Carcaterra. So please enjoy this conversation. This is Johns Hopkins goalie, goalie of the year, professional lacrosse goalie, Brian Carcaterra. Before we begin this episode, I want to read a word from our sponsor, and that is my own Lacrosse Goalie Summit. The Lacrosse Goalie Summit is a five-day free virtual lacrosse goalie training event, and it's really a simple idea. I invite the best lacrosse goalie coaches, the best lacrosse goalies in our sport together for this five-day event to give free training sessions on different elements of this position. Lacrosse Goalie Summit 7 is now available for registration. Go to goaliesummit.com and get your free ticket. You're going to learn things like techniques and drills, mental mindsets of elite goalies, mindfulness training, tons of mental game training this time around. We're going to run it June 27th through July 1st. You can get an absolute free ticket at goaliesummit.com. You'll have the opportunity to buy the VIP pass once you sign up, and that is lifetime access to all the replays. So you can go back and watch all of these training events whenever and also wherever you want. You can download them and take them to go. I got a ton of great goalie coaches lined up for the Lacrosse Goalie Summit 7. We've got Goalie Smith, Sean Quirk, Ted Bergman, Chris Buck, Brett Dobson, Emily Sterling, Ariel Weissman, Mr. Wonderful is going to be there, Simon Bellamy, Tim Cassie, Goldies Matter, Reagan Alexander will be there, and tons of special guests as well. We're going we're gonna to have tons of fun. You're going to learn, I guarantee, at least one or two amazing things from each session. It's live. It's virtual via Zoom. So get signed up, GoldieSummit.com for your free ticket. Once again, that's GoldieSummit.com and I'll see you starting on June 27th. 
pleasure to welcome to the show three-time All-American. Uh, the accolades actually go on and on. MLL goalie Brian Carcaterra. Brian, welcome to the show. Damon, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for uh, thinking of me, and I look forward to our chat. Of course, you know I've got I've got I'm on this mission to get all the best goalies on the podcast, and I consider you that. Uh, but before we get into you know your your great career, I'd love to know where it all started. Do you remember that very first time you jumped into goal? I do. I do. Um, so I grew up in a town called Yorktown, New York, which is, you know, a lacrosse hotbed. Um, but more, you know, that would sell it, sell it a little bit short. It's a community in which members of the lacrosse community um, span generations and uh, ages transcended and um, friendships and bonds and mentorships and um, all sorts of interesting and dynamic relationships exist in that community. Um, unlike any other community in the lacrosse world. And um, it was just a lottery ticket that my parents decided that they were going to settle in Yorktown um, from the Bronx in 1975. And I was short, I was born in 77. So they, they had no idea about the game of lacrosse and they just ended up in a town in which lacrosse was everything. So um, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't long after um, you know, my brother, Steve, who's five years older than me, he'll be 50 this summer, um, started, he picked up a lacrosse stick in middle school. And then my brother, Paul, who you, who's everywhere in terms of his ESPN broadcasting and his, uh, his mentorship in the game of lacrosse, um, is two years older than me. And then there's me, we sort of all picked it up around the same time. Because youth lacrosse wasn't, you know, offered at the third or fourth grade level, but it was in the middle school level. So that's when Steve picked it up. And our neighbor played on the 1969 Yorktown team. Um, and uh, he was a uh, plumber by trade. So he had old PVC piping, which he connected to make a six by six frame. And there was an old fishing net that we draped over it. And with line put the fishing net behind the PVC goal and we put it in our backyard behind an above ground pool that we had. And it was sort of a gravity point for those people in the neighborhood that were playing lacrosse. What we found out was that every time my brothers would miss the goal, it would go over a four foot high little you know, fence and it would go all the way about 80 yards into the back of this neighbor's house. And it, I'll never forget, his name was Guy Cortese and he was the biggest asshole you could ever imagine so he would scream and yell and he'd come out in you know in his shorts and his tank top shirt and he'd scream and yell at everybody he was an older person I don't blame him yeah. um so there was a time in which we had to figure out what to do there so they told me and I was at the time nine or ten years old to get in the goal so that I could protect from the balls missing the cage and I can at least try and make a save every now and again um, and I can fetch the ball and give it back to them if it goes over the fence and hits Cortese's house. So I basically was forced to play goalie. I didn't have a choice to play goalie. They made me play goalie for the single purpose of retrieving balls, preventing balls, and um, having somebody to shoot at in the goal. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I have this theory that we only become goalies for three reasons, and you certainly fit into one of the theories, which is older sibling needs somebody to shoot on. Yeah. People say I'm crazy. I don't think I am. I, I, if it was up to me, I would have probably played attack, you know? So, uh, but I was forced to play goalie at a young age and they, uh, they took in, they took a knee pad from a wrestling 
friend, a team, a person, friend of ours that was on the Yorktown wrestling team and they taped it up and put it down my shorts um, and duct taped or athletic taped around it. And then they put a, a helmet on me and uh, a catcher's uh, baseball catcher's mm-hmm. chest protector and the uh, gloves and a super light too. And I just got shot on for an entire summer. And it was awesome because as a young person too, you're striving to get attention from older siblings or older people in your community. It's mm-hmm. like the, it's a, uh, it's part of your psychosis, right? Like you just auto- automatically want to be accepted by and be along, you know, be around people that are older than you, particularly at that age. So um, that was part of, that was integral to me wanting to be there. And I got in that goal every day. And I had an awesome summer hanging out with the older brothers and their friends. And then for Christmas that year, I think it was my fourth grade year, fourth grade academic year, under the Christmas tree was a brine shotgun. And I had no idea what it was. So I opened it up and I said, what, this stick's too big. And they said, no, that's a goalie stick. You've been playing with a short stick. So that spring, um, we didn't have youth lacrosse in fourth grade, but we had it in fifth grade. I spent the entire spring and summer at Charlie Murphy's house, who I'll talk, tell you about in a bit, um, getting shot on by, you know, people in my, my, around my age, but not anyone my age, a little bit older, mm-hmm. and then some high school players and then some college players when they would return from their college seasons. And I just got shot on all the time. And then by the time I played in my first fifth grade season, the following year, I felt like I had a leg up on everybody. That's awesome. Now, did you, when you're getting shot on, did anybody like show you the ropes or did anybody say, here's how you stand? Here's how you hold the stick. Here's how, yeah. here's how you do it. Or like, was it just pure reps? Yeah. Well, well great question. Um, so again, as part of our community, it did, you know, age was sort of, um, how could I say it was very blurred in terms of who hung out with who. So my brother, Steve was five years older than me. Um, and he, he had two very close friends who were both the goalies that were the Yorktown goalies from 1987 through 1989. So there's two goalies in three years. One was Steve Kavavit, who was an All-American at Yorktown and an All-American at uh, University of Maryland. He actually broke and still holds the record for most saves in a game in a college playoff game against Brown in 91. And then Joe Spallone, who remains one of our closest friends today who played at Yorktown, won a state championship, was game MVP against an amazing Corning team and had a great career. He went to Herkimer and then he went and started at Stony Brook. So those two were in our nucleus of call it family and friends. And they were teaching me how to play the position of goal at Charlie Murphy's house. And I had the benefit of two, you know, um, you know, what, what would be future All-Americans and All-Stars and MVPs giving me tutelage at, an, at a very young age. And then as I spent all that time at Charlie Murphy's house, which I'll, again, I'll explain, folks that were coming back from college, including uh, a guy named Jim Gilman, who was a four-year starter at Rutgers and was a multi-time All-American at Rutgers, he would come back and I idolized watching him play because everybody said that he was the greatest goalie ever at Yorktown. And he was the one that beat West Genesee, who was the best high school team ever. And I think it probably still is. It was John Zilberti's junior year. They had won 91 straight games and three straight state championships. And we beat them to prevent the fourth straight state championship. So it was wild. Anyway, I'm talking a lot of data and facts, but I had all of this insane mentorship a mile and a half away from my house at what I call. So let me just quickly explain Charlie Murphy. Charlie Murphy was a class of 1934 Princeton lacrosse player, graduate of Princeton University, went to Harvard Law for a cup of coffee. His father was a plumbing 
an exceptional plumber who built a huge business in, uh, in Manhattan during what would have been the Great Depression thereafter when the economic boom was able to come back pre-World War II. And he put the plumbing in the Empire State Building, for example. Oh, and wow. Charlie Groot was lived in a privileged life on a brownstone on Park Avenue and went to Ivy Leagues and all so on and so forth. He had gone through some personal issues after college, which involved alcoholism, and his parents sort of exiled him from the family business and shipped him up to a farm that they had bought and owned in Yorktown, New York, which is now Wilkins Fruit Farm, which sells apples and pumpkins and so on and so forth. As part of that farm, there was a caretaker house and there was the, and there was the manor house. And he lived in that manor house and almost drank himself to death. But in 1965, he, you know, he, after finding Alcoholics Anonymous and getting himself sober, he decided that he was going to be the initial benefactor of Yorktown Lacrosse. And in 1965, he wrote a check to the public school district, and they found a guy named Jim Turnbull, who's still alive, and I see and talk to him often. And they formed Yorktown Lacrosse as one of the first public high schools that played lacrosse in Westchester County in the mid-1960s. And the rest is history. Charlie then sold off a bunch of property. They gave the fruit farm to Wilkins family, who were the caretakers. He moved into one of the called the servants' quarters, which was the you know more of a caretaker house, but a beautiful old Irish stucco house on two and a half acres of an apple orchard, where he plowed the fields and he created lacrosse goals and fields. And no, everybody was welcome in the Yorktown lacrosse community. The door was always open. Um, and folks would come and go and visit with Charlie. He was sort of a Pied Piper um, and, you know, a legendary iconic figure who is now in the U.S. Lacrosse Hall of Fame for all of his contributions towards Yorktown. And it was a place that we would use as a retreat to meet older people and younger people and come and talk about lacrosse and watch all of the national championship games and the world team games on his VCR. And we would go out and we would play lacrosse all day long. And I'd bring my equipment up. My mom would drop me off you know, at 11 o'clock in the morning, I would get home at eight o'clock at night, four days a week in the summer for six years of my life. That's amazing. I got so yeah. many, I got so many questions on this. Um, yeah. <laughs> first question is, um, you know, a lot with the growth of lacrosse these days, a lot of uh, lacrosse goalie moms and dads find themselves in the same situation that your mom and dad found themselves in, which is my kids are playing. I, have, I know nothing about the sport. Yeah. Right. Um, how, how did they go about supporting you guys not knowing anything about what this lacrosse is? Yeah, exceptional question. And I'm very proud of this answer. My dad um, was raised in public housing. Um, you know, he was the first male person in his family ever to graduate high school at Cardinal Hayes and went on to have a full scholarship academic career at Fordham. And my mom was an immigrant whose parents were uh, Irish born and raised and had and met during World War II and had my mom and she lived in England till she was four and came over to America and they lived, you know, like any other immigrant story that you would hear in post-World War II America. My parents met at the age of 14 with basically nothing, right, other than the community in which they lived in um, from two different and dynamic, you know, upbringings. And so by the time that my parents got married after college and then had kids, you know, four healthy, you know, what I deem to be great kids and fun and exciting siblings that I have, they were just so happy that we were sort of living in an American dream. You know, they had a, we had a small 1500 square foot house in Yorktown with one shower. Um, and, but we had about an acre of property and an above ground pool. And it was like paradise for two people that had nothing. Right. 
So the time in which we started playing lacrosse, neither of my parents played any sports other than recreationally. Um, they were just happy that we were part of something. And it was like, you know, they would tell their family members that were still in the Bronx or in Queens that, you know, they're playing this Native American sport and they're running around, you know, hitting each other with sticks and they're doing all these crazy things with the ball and we're hoping that they don't knock out our windows, et cetera. By the time we started playing games, they were like, you know, still pinching themselves. So like they had no sort of authority in their own mind to talk about our playing ability or uh, what we need to do to better prepare, uh, what camps we need to go to, what programs we need to go to. Uh, the very thought of them maybe even paying for somebody to help us would, was beyond foreign. So it was, you know, you're going to play lacrosse, you're going to be healthy, you're going to do well in school, you're going to stay out of trouble. Um, and I don't care if you're, you never get any playing time or you get all the playing time. Um, you know, we're just happy you're doing it. So they were a very hands-off in terms of our trajectory and our, and their sort of um, involvement with our on-field lacrosse behavior. Um, everything off the field, they had the greatest of influence, of course. Yeah. Got it. Perfect. Uh, yeah. I love, love to hear that. Now were they, you know, a lot of times when goalies have a bad game, right? Like, like they can be there to give lessons. Were they there for you for that? Or is that more like, you know, your brothers kind of helping you out when you had a, a rough go? Yeah. So very, so great question and two totally different answers. So my brothers, Paul and Steve, who both were all Americans and, um, you know, Paul was a captain in national championship at national champion at Syracuse. Steve had a wonderful career where he won state championship at Yorktown, a runner-up national championship at junior college at Herkimer, and then started for three years at Towson. And they had very, very good teams, you know, beating Hopkins and going to the quarterfinals two of those three seasons. And then the finals before, the year before he got there. So um, they were, they, they obviously gave me tough love as any older brothers would, um, but they always put in the time. So like, it was never like, Hey, can I get shot on? No, get out of here. It was always like, let's go, let's go get the balls. Yeah. Um, hey, can we go to this summer league game so I can watch, you know, Steve Kavovic play let's go. You know, it was very much, Hey, you're going to go play in the in this league as a high school player, as a sophomore, but it's going to be against college players. So you better go and play, you know? And, you know, if I played terribly or if they thought that I lacked effort, they rode me hard. Um, but it was all in the spirit of trying to help me become the best player I could possibly be. My parents, on the other hand, didn't care if I saved 20 or gave up 20. They were happy to see me at the tailgate and they would give me big hugs and kisses. And um, they would tell me that they love me and how proud they were of me, um, irrespective of my save percentage that day. So it was, it was, um, they were, they typically, they would get more excited if we won because they liked the, the, um, the human behavior aspect of it and the uh, sort of the, the, the anthropology of it, like the, the, they loved being around the spirit of it, but they also didn't cringe at losses or, you know, it was pretty much by the time they got home, it was like out of sight, out of mind, and, you know, making sure that I was doing okay in school and behaving off the field. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, is, is Yorktown still like that in terms of, you know, it's lacrosse community? Yeah. So Charlie Murphy passed away in 2005 and undoubtedly a part of that part of the program did definitely die when he passed away mm -hmm. because they, we didn't have that Mecca to um, retreat to that safe place. 
Um, so it was, uh, it, it changed, right? So the cultural dynamic changed because of the environment physically changed. That being said, the coaches are, who I think are some of the best coaches in America have created a, you know, a real, real culture in terms of staying connected to the program, making sure that the boys give back. Uh, for example, to, um, I think the best defensive player in division one, and maybe the best teammate in college across this year was a guy named Brett Makar from Maryland. He was the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year and just won the national championship on Monday. He has one more year of eligibility. He's from Yorktown, and he embodies the spirit of Yorktown, being the teammate and the contributor and the love and the passion for the game. Um, he comes back to Yorktown and helps the young kids, and he helps promote the game from the, um, from the program inside and out. So to your direct question, is Yorktown still like that? It can never be what it was but it's certainly doing its best to maintain that connectivity to us, our, our past. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And what, what a, I mean, what a experience that Charlie Murphy created with that field. I mean, it just sounds like the field of dreams where you like have all these lacrosse version where you have all these, you know, future legends coming to play and, and just sharing the sport and having fun. And it sounds amazing. I, a I field of dreams, it. a field of dreams. Indeed. Yeah. You know, you, you played until you couldn't play anymore either by sunlight or by, you know, cramps or just exhaustion. And the time spent underneath, you know, the big oak tree outside of his patio, talking to seeing, you know, older people and uh, teammates of yours and dreaming about being just like them and talking through all that. And, or even in those winter days and chopping wood and bringing the firewood into the house to, to help with, you know, to help Mr. Murph do that. Um, he was an elderly person from the time I met him. So we did a lot of things around the house to make sure that the place was kept up and he busted our ass, uh, you know, terribly at times, but it was all because he wanted to make sure that we were, you know, contributing and not, not taking, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So I wish you could see it. It's, it, it's still the, the parameters of the real estate still exist. Um, the spirit of the home and the, and the, feel doesn't you know but right. i'll take some pictures one day and send them to you yeah i would love that i'd absolutely love that sorry i wanted sorry. to ask did you you know playing goalie for so many hours each day um you know you you, you take one to the thigh take one to the shin take one to the shoulder and you're like oh man like all of a sudden like i'm not feeling as good did you ever have a day or or an experience like that where you just get beat up and you're like oh, i don't want to i don't want to be here anymore or, or or was your mindset just a very very different no, no. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I never had those days, right? I mean, I have those days with my family and my being with my family is my favorite thing in the world to do now, you know? Um, you, you, can't, you can't love the game um, and you can't love this position without having terribly dark days, you know? Um, it's the most demanding position in all of sports. You, you wear the least amount of equipment of any player on the field and you are in the biggest, you are in the path of harm's way, the greatest. Um, the ball hurts, no matter if you step to it or it just shocks you with one. Um, there are times in practices where you get all everything out of practice in your warm up and your initial six on six. But once you start going into these four on three drills and these six on fives and your target practice, you know, and the defenders are playing a little bit lighter and the contact is a little softer and you're, you're no, there's nowhere to go. It's frustrating. It's not a happy place to be. And 
when you get hit, it sucks. Um, it's amazing during a game because it's just like a save. But in practice, it hurts. It stings. It makes you rethink what the heck are you doing in there? It makes you want to run out and slash the guy in the head for doing it. Um, yeah, I've never said in my life, I don't want to play this position anymore. I've always dreamt of like, you know, hey, wouldn't it be awesome to be like, you know, you know, some uh, Gary Gate and do a behind the back with a short stick. And yeah, but it never got to the point where I felt that the position was overwhelmingly too physical. Mm -hmm. um, and those tough times uh, make you really enjoy, you know, the beauty of the position as well. So it has to come with it. The pain, the bruises, the shock, it's all part of the equation. Yeah, love it. I can just imagine you showing off your bruises to, to your older brothers. Uh, you really got me on that one, so, something like that, huh? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like the, I've gotten, it's interesting, right? So like the, the, the fleshy inside parts of like inside of your um, quadriceps and near your hamstrings, they bruise the most. And, you know, when, and, you know, the top, you know, the, 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 the firmest, most dense portions of your body, like the shin and, and your, you know, your upper quadriceps, they don't really, they don't really bruise that much, but like, you know, they still hurt equally the same. So no, you know, no bruise is the same. They all hurt. Um, but luckily, uh, you know, I, I'm proud of the fact I never missed a, a game because of an injury. And uh, luckily, my body's always recu recuperated quite quickly. There was one instance, I'll tell you, speaking of getting hit, I got hit in the lower calf, just above my ankle, just where sort of the fleshier part begins with your lower calf muscle. Yeah. And it was a stinger. I mean, this was 95 miles an hour, stepped down from 12 yards on like a Tuesday afternoon. And it just hit me. And I, you know, obviously you lose feeling in your left foot, you know, you can't put any pressure on it. The pain is blinding you. Um, so I stepped out and I was like, okay, you know, whatever, just catch your breath. You know, it's all about breathing and sort of allowing the pain to dissipate. And then the next morning, and, and then I was like, you know, I even played, I think the rest, I got back into practice and just went easy on it, you know, asked the attacker not to, you know, to shoot high or something. And, uh, but the next morning, my entire foot was swollen. Mm. So I sort of got nervous a little bit because I've nothing, I'm not no medical expert, but I thought of a blood clot or anything like that. But um, the, the, the impact crushed so much capillary that it just flooded the gravity point and it just soaked all the way into my foot and my foot was twice the size. It was like, wow. you know, so, you know, we went to the, I got to the training room and we just iced it and thank God nothing serious happened of it, but that was scary. Yeah. I remember when I got my first stinger because I never played football um, growing up. I was pretty small, so I played soccer and and about tennis and and basketball. But I got my first stinger because I I kind of went it was a high shot went right in the elbow on the inside and just my whole arm like yeah. couldn't feel it and I got so scared and like my teammates come over and I kind of explain what happened and they're like oh that's a stinger you're good yeah like, how tall are you five eight yeah. Yeah, I'm five right now. I used to be five eight. I'm five seven and three quarters. But I, um, what I'm proud of too, over the course of my career, from the age of ten to twenty five, I was always, without question, the smallest player on the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did I was going to ask you about that? Because um, I love short goalies. Obviously, being one myself, like I love to watch them play. And when you watch your style of play, like very active right? Like get after it, get that ground ball outside the crease. I make the save. There's a little opening. I'm gone. Like I'm going, um, where'd that come from? Where, where did that, 
you know, where did that style, how did that style develop? Quinn Kessnick. Yeah. The first college cross game I ever saw live. Now we went back and looked at all the old tapes from the early eighties, et cetera. But the first college lacrosse game I saw was in 1987 in Piscataway, New Jersey at the Rutgers campus with Hopkins had beaten undefeated Maryland and undefeated Cornell. And it was led by a freshman goalie named Quint Kesnick, who was an all state wrestler and a three-year starter at Limbrook High School and moved into the starting position halfway through that season as a true freshman. He was the NCAA's tournament's most valuable player. And it, everything just, the light switch turned on, you know? So let's see, I was in sixth grade, I was in uh, fifth, I was in fourth grade in 1987. So seeing a guy who was 5'8", who ran what looked like a 4'340", who jumped, who looks like he could hurdle the top of the 6'6", and, you know, uh, could dive the length of, you know, a car. I saw this athleticism in a small pint-sized version of of a lacrosse player, and I said to myself, that's who I want to be. That's amazing. That's amazing. I had Quint on the show. He's awesome. Um, just, just, just great goalie mind. And obviously so involved in the sport. Um, yeah. Close friend of ours, uh, yeah. a, a colleague broadcast partner of my brother, Paul, right. uh, a friend, a mentor, you know, somebody I can chat with about anything. Um, I'm, I'm lucky to have had him in my life from watching him to being in a relationship, friendship with him during college and him broadcasting those games and giving me pointers. And then after college is my brother's business partner, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Now was that, did that watching Quint, did that set in motion the idea to go to Hopkins or, you know, how did you talk to me a little bit about your high school career and kind of when, when you first envisioned playing at the next level? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think I got, I ordered from Lax world, uh, a Hopkins across t-shirt, which I have a picture of it's me first day of school wearing a Hopkins shirt. It was Snoopy with a lacrosse goal. And it says Hopkins lacrosse. I think that was my fifth grade year. So it would have been fourth grade. He won in May. So I would have worn that my fifth grade September. Um, I'll send that to you. Yeah. I just uh, made a note. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I struggled academically. I, my brother Steve did academically. Paul was more disciplined. I, my, all I knew that, you know, from what my parents told me was that the smartest people in the world attended Hopkins. And I knew that I was not one of those people. So, so I tried to think about, um, you know, Hopkins as for more far reaching. Um, but it was, uh, in, uh, 1987, that same year, a person from Yorktown named Billy Dwan, who was the associate head coach at Johns Hopkins and part of that staff for 20 years, won two national championships with coach Dave Petromala, um, you know, sort of a hero of mine. He went on and was a four-year starter at Hopkins. His now wife who was Pam Dorr. Her younger brother, Rob Dorr, was my is my best friend, my high school teammate, my college roommate, and he was a two-time first-team All-American and MLL Defensive Player of the Year. Um, so a, a legend on the field, best of friends. So I had access to Johns Hopkins from 1988 to 1991 because of Billy, Duan, mm-hmm. and Rob. So Rob would go to all these games and report back to me. You should have seen Quinn. He had 22 saves against Syracuse. He brought the ball up through the midfield four different times, you know, and then we would get some tape from Mr. Dwan, who used to videotape the games. This was before national broadcasting of all of them. Right. And we watch them during the weekdays and I get to watch and I had all this access. And then they would play army West point, which was 20 miles from Yorktown each year. 
So we'd get to watch them play there. It was really just, you know, I had all this access to Hopkins via that relationship and in parallel had all this access to Syracuse because our closest family friend in our, amongst our siblings, we were in, all three of us were in his wedding and he was in all three of ours. It was a guy named Dom Finn, who's a U.S. Lacrosse Hall of Famer and a three-time first team All-American. Him and Roy Colsey from Yorktown, who's one of our closest friends as well, and Rick Beardsley and a bunch of others all went to Syracuse when I was in middle school and college, uh, middle school and high school. So I had access to all these college programs via, you know, relationships we had from Yorktown and seeing things that no, you know, no other kids in our age would have access to, i.e. the game films or going to the games and meeting the players after at tailgates, et cetera. So it was like, you know, it was like a, I was living sort of a dream, you know, with, with braces on and, you know, at four foot nine wrestling on the night, you know, wrestling 91 pounds as an eighth grader on varsity, you know? So I had all this access as a little kid, you know, to the people that I idolized. I didn't really watch, you know, I watched college football and professional football and I love watching those sports, but I didn't idolize any of those people. I idolized the people I watched on the lacrosse field. Yeah. So to your aunt, to your question, I thought of Hopkins as a potential place for possibly me to dream to, or to go to. Um, but, uh, you know, I had people that I looked up to that were at Maryland and Syracuse and Towson and, um, you know, I wanted to go where those people went and made their legacy, um, you know, you know, so, so enduring. Right. That's amazing. You had that level of access. I mean, I, I, you know, not to sound like the old guys that say these young kids have it so good these days, but you know, nowadays you go on, I mean, every game is on ESPN plus, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing. Like if you want to watch lacrosse, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, Pack, pack 12, like you, any division, you can go in and find men's and women's, you can find the games and just digest them. It wasn't like that uh, when we were growing up. You got the VHS te- tape of, for me anyways, I got the VHS tape of the championship game and yeah. you would watch, you'd watch that, you know, until it broke. <laughs> and, and, and now the look, and not only can you watch Cal play BYU, but it's an amazing, it's amazing lacrosse, right? Exactly. Like it's yeah. the product is so good at that level that if you have the ability to compete at a high level from a club program to all the way to the players that played on Monday, I mean, you're just a good lacrosse player Mm -hmm. and probably better than 99% of the kids that you played against in high school, which gives these kids from a younger generation, an opportunity to digest and find players that they just adore watching, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, when you went out as a kid, were you ever, were you simply playing for the love of the game or were you ever thinking like, all right, I want to play in college. Let's go. I need to do X, Y, and Z to get to that level. Uh, You know, Steve, Paul, can you come take shots on me? Uh, Yeah. I mean, uh, there was never a day that I existed on this earth up until college that I didn't think I was going to play in college. It was my dream and I knew it was going to be my reality. Yeah. Nice. I love that conviction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 it, and, it, and it happened, right? I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's I, I, I went to see my brother Steve play Towson in 19, uh, play Hopkins. And it was the first time I had ever gone to uh, a college across game in Baltimore. It was Towson versus Hopkins in 1990. Uh, sorry, it wasn't the first because I went to Towson. First time I ever went to Homewood Field. And it was 1992. So I would have been a freshman in high school. So I was 13 or 14. And, um, the U S lacrosse hall of fame was in the end zone of Homewood field back then. 
And I walked into it on my own because my parents had driven up to the game early and I was able to wander around. And um, the executive director, a guy named, who I still remember today, and he's a good friend, is a guy named Jody Martin. He said, can I help you, young man? And I said to him, yeah, I'm just looking to find out where the uh, Ensign C. Marklin Kelly Award trophy is. And he's like, that's the goalie of the year trophy. I said, yeah. He goes, now, why would you want to see that? I said, because I want to know where my name's going to go on it. Boom. <laughs> and I, that's a true story. You can ask Jody that story today. So he said, come with me. And he said, here's this trophy. And uh, I think you're going to be on it one day. I said, I know I will be. And then, um, and he taught, you know, talked me, told me all about it and showed me everything around it. And, um, you know, I met him, you know, it wasn't, so that was my freshman year in high school. And then by sophomore year in college, I won the award. And he said, you know, I remember that conversation. I said, sure do. Of course. I love it. There is something to be said totally about that level of conviction in anything in life. Like if you, I'm not even talking about goalie, but if you just say like, I'm going to be this, right. Yeah. I'm, I know I'm going to be this. And you like truly believe it. And then you start acting like that, right? Like, I mean, you start acting like goalie of the year. And what would goalie of the year do on a Sunday? Would he go out and, you know, drink with his friends or would he go take shots, yeah. right? Like, you know, you start acting like that and it just manifests itself. So I, I love that story. Yeah, and as a person, I'll be 45 in October and I've got a lot of things in my life right now. I've got my, my family life. I have my professional life. I've got my social life. I've got my... Have, um, my hobby life, you know, as you can see, I'm an outdoorsman from the, the mounts behind my head, but you, you know, I have a lot of things pulling at me and I'm trying to be a lot of things to a lot of people. I don't have that singular direction anymore where I want to be the best commercial real estate broker for CBRE or the best real estate investor, because that would mean that I can't do all the other things in my life. Mm -hmm. So I'll never be like I was in the goal because I can't singularly focus on that, nor do I want to. Right. But as, a, as an adolescent, that's all I wanted. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, like I'll never be as good as that because I never can focus on just that again because I have too many other things going on in my life. And I'm delighted to have that problem. Of course. You know? Yeah, and it just, well, it just makes me think like if there's a young kid like um... – listening to this like just value that time because you're right like when when you're growing up when you're in those college years like you can you can really you can really hone in on something that you love so much and when you become an adult like guess what you got other responsibilities that you love equally as great but you the, just the, you can't focus yeah, on that. the distractions when you're that young aren't life impacting mm -hmm. meaning meaning if you neglect them your life will go in a, in a different trajectory in a negative way. Meaning at that point, if you don't want to smoke cigarettes or, you know, or party all the time or screw around in school. Yeah. You know, that's going to be a problem for you because you're just not going to achieve the best version of yourself, but you're not impacting anyone else. You're just hurting yourself. Mm -hmm. If I don't, if I'm not the best, dad I possibly can be or the, you know or the best partner in work I can possibly I'm going to be hurting other people right. so so to your point if you have a singular focus in in your life to be a great athlete or be a great goalie and you met you mind you mind yourself in terms of the outside stuff that can bring you down you could you could really laser in on on being that yeah love it love it so um you got all these influences, you know, at, at the different college programs. I mean, did you ever give any thought? Because your brother was already at Syracuse, yeah? I mean, did you ever give any thought to go into play there? Or what was it about Hopkins that 
you know, really, really made ultimately made you uh, attend that school? Yeah, great, great question. I think it. Uh, I think also a couple things. Uh, you, if you're the best midfielder in the country and you've got great grades and resources, family, you know, your family does okay, professional, you know, whatever it is, you can go anywhere you want, right? You can go to Harvard or you can go to Towson or you can go to Loyola or you can go to Middlebury or you can wherever. Every everybody will take you. Everybody will offer you a scholarship. Yeah. My situation was different. A, and I'm not saying I was because I don't think I was. If you were the best goal in the country, it doesn't matter because if Syracuse recruited last year's best goal in the country, they don't need you. Right. Right. Or they're not going to offer you up scholarship right. money for that position because they've allocated it towards the person they've recruited the first, the year before you. So my dad was a public school teacher in the Bronx. My mom was a Catholic school teacher in the Bronx. We didn't have any money. We had two people in college. We had a, a sister below me who I love and I, we've been neglecting her, but she didn't play lacrosse, but she was our team manager. Um, she, so we didn't have resources to not go to a place where I couldn't achieve some type of financial aid. So finally I didn't have good grades. So I was a C plus student in high school, which I regret. I was a B student in college, which is crazy how you can be better at Hopkins and worse at Yorktown. But I, I managed to pull that off. Um, so uh, bad grades, no money, and small goalie, right? So it wasn't the ingredient for it wasn't the ingredients for a lot of the programs. So I didn't get recruited heavily by a lot of places. Um, so thankfully, I had great timing with Johns Hopkins because Coach Seaman um, had recruited John Marcus, who was the goalie for four years in front of me, who's the number one all-time leading save leader at Hopkins. Um, and a dear friend and a wonderful goalie, really, really underappreciated, fantastic athlete and tremendous goalie. Um, so my timing was such that when I went in as a freshman, he was a senior. I had so much financial aid because we had no money and two brothers in college that whatever he could help me with scholarship was offset by financial was far great. Financial aid was a far greater package than any type of scholarship they could offer me, which was limited. So I was able to go in my, that year for, I think, $5,000. Mm -hmm. And then I earned my position that year as a backup. And I played scout goalie that entire year. And we played six lefties. And I played almost the entire redshirt season lefty. Brian Doherty, we played twice. Chris Sanderson from Virginia lefty. Um, the uh, Jason Gebhardt from Syracuse lefty. I had to play lefty every other week for a full week against the, the number one offense. I got killed. That being said, I showed him enough to have him commit to me for a full scholarship the following fall, which would have been my first lacrosse year. So I was a red shirt freshman. Yeah. So I got very, very lucky that Hopkins had a need that coach Seaman saw, saw me play enough that he knew that my potential, despite my height was going to be something like he had been used to seeing at that level. Um, and uh, they took a chance on me academically, and I, I made good on that. So I got very lucky. Not to say that if I ended up somewhere else, that I would have had a different fate, but I got very lucky to be at Hopkins because of that. But for all the goalies that might listen to this, just because you're good, you're good doesn't mean you go anywhere you want. And just because you're good doesn't mean everybody will want you. Be humble in this process and be very appreciative of their concerns, their current situation. And what's the best fit for you, whether it's a family resource uh, stand up um, situation, whether it's an academic situation, whether it's a playing situation, 
just because you're, you know, you watched Maryland play or Duke play, that doesn't mean you should go there. And that doesn't mean they want you there. Just keep focused and just watch for the opportunities. And as the opportunities present themselves, you see what those become for you. Yeah, that's great advice. That's great advice. And also be humble enough to accept, you know, whatever role you're given on the team, right? It could be the starter. It could be the scout goalie who, who needs to play lefty for an entire an entire season, right? That wasn't easy. I tell you, I learned a lot of valuable lessons in the goal from doing that. What'd you learn? I, uh, I, I took a lot of my, um, my I was more of a, an, an in-cage athletic goalie. Um, very uh, spontaneous and sort of impromptu. So I would play sometimes high, sometimes low, jump, leave my feet, you know, step to the ball big, not step the ball, high arc, not high arc. You know, I would move around based on field surface, based on whether it was a predominantly a midi team, whether it was predominantly an attack team. And I just try to do that. When you're playing lefty, you don't have, you, you, your comfort zone is reduced. Mm-hmm. You, your athleticism shrinks because it's unnatural for you to be in there. And you focus on position. And I use that, that time to really focus on being flat, you know, flat arc, really focused on the ball, lack of athleticism, but really good form. And I, you know, I, by the end of that year, I was making a lot of saves lefty. Yeah. I, I think that in the future, I'm not, by the way, I'm not encouraging anyone to do that. That is not, it's not the way to, to, get yourself better but it got it got me better because my biggest strength also could be a weakness meaning the unorthodox I was, I was just about ready to encourage people to try it yeah i don't uh it could be a little dangerous um yeah. but but my biggest strength of being athletic was also sort of a hindrance at times i would find myself out of position uh, i would find myself making what should be a casual save sort of electrifying and then i would i'd miss what could be a casual shit save because i was I was too active. So yeah. that helped me get back in there, settle in and focus. Yeah, interesting. When now when you say active, what immediately comes to mind is like Matt Russell. Have you ever watched Matt Russell? Love play? Matt Russell's game. Yeah. What like, a fantastic athlete and a, a heart of a lion and a tremendous goalie. Totally agree. Totally agree. But I think like, you know, he's he's our size, right? You know, yep. like shorter goalie. And he was just really, just really active, you know, like really active in the crease. And so, so when you talk about like being active, like that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. And also uh, like in close shots, cause I was small and I, would, I, I sort of, I played with a little bit of a wider base, which was not great for somebody who's five, eight, but I would oftentimes unintentionally bake players high inside. Uh-huh. So, and I would, I'd leave my feet often because, you know, they, they try dip and dunk, trip and dunk. And I, you know, I'd stay low, stay low. And then I'd leave my feet. But like oftentimes if a guy's coming around the top, you know, he fakes high, I'm sort of leaving my feet already and then he's dropping it low. Nice. I, I would, I would leave my feet to, to your, to answer your direct question. All of what you described with Matt Russell is stuff that I did. Like I, I'm proud of this statistic at Hopkins. I'm the only goalie in the top 20 ever in ground balls. Nice. Yeah. But um, what I like, what my, what I refer to as sort of athleticism, stopping the ball, you know, right. Like a, a like a Scott Bacigalupo, who's a hero of mine. He was, uh, he, his technique and form was not what you would uh, write a book about, no. but his instincts were off this planet. 
it's so weird watching him play because like you see these still photos and he's like he's like totally upright and like standing like totally i had him on the show right and i'm like do you would you recommend goalies do he's like no yeah do not, do not play like i play he'd play on his tippy toes and his stick in his almost his mesh in front of his helmet yeah and then when they'd shoot shoot low he he'd do a split and he'd lift his hand up and drop his left arm and he'd hold it like a hot he, he was insane but yeah. um but yeah uh, spectacular yeah um now when you get to hopkins did you know a part of like playing lefty and like having to do all this but did did your goalie game change at all or were you just so used to like seeing those caliber shots that you were you were already used to it yeah it did um you can't you can't get away with certain things in college that you could get away with in high school. Um, you can't really play a high arc anymore because the speed of the shot is coming at you so fast from 12 yards that you need that you, you need a 12 yard shot to look like a 13 and a half yard shot. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so you learn about, you know, pacing yourself from the standpoint of distance. Um, I had great coaches and great people around me um, that helped me, you know, maximize my potential. Um, they, they helped me think about the position from the standpoint of, of being a little bit more in control, um, being a little bit more disciplined with footwork, uh, staying in the goal, not dropping the hands, you know, the typical things. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they encouraged what, what helped me become different and, and helped me maximize my potential was they encouraged the play out of the goal. So that was really helpful. Interesting. They encourage that. Yeah. Cause a lot of, a lot of goalie, young goalies email me and they say like, my coaches don't encourage that. Right. Like every time, like it makes it, you know, for a, a coach, sometimes it can make him nervous when the goalie goes sprinting out. Um, what do you, what would you say to that, to that young goalie? Cause I'm very much with you. Like I'm very much, I was an active goalie. I think I if, if it makes sense, like go win that ground ball. Like if it makes sense, like clear it to the midfield, like it just, it's a really um, energizing play. Um, and if it makes sense, chase the ball out, right? I mean, do everything you can to yeah. win the game. And and um, I can't believe coaches are not like that, but I don't know, what would you say to a young goalie? Yeah, um, like that? yeah, uh, to each zone, obviously, you know, everybody's different. Uh, you are the extra player on the field. Right. Um, you are, you do have a competitive advantage if you're used correctly. Um, it's very simple if you could be a threat from the standpoint of being mobile outside of the goal. Um, I, I think, I think I look at the goalie position as four equal parts. You have the ability to save the ball, the ability to communicate, the ability to clear, and then you have the mental edge, meaning what's next, right? Having that ability to erase what just happened and just focus on what's next. If you're not doing all four of those parts equally, now you're going to be better at certain things for sure. But if you're not mindful, um, then you're not going to really excel at the position. So I think clearing um, and having the ability to be effective as the extra person on the field, on your side of the field, is imperative. Uh, you know, you shouldn't struggle with clearing the ball. And that involves being creative with the ball and being able to make passes that you should be confident making and um, drawing the attackman and moving the ball. So it's, it's, it's important. You can't get away with not being a good clearing goalie. Yeah, 100% agree. 100% agree. Get out there, hit the wall, get comfortable with that stick, like learn some dodges, 
right? I got a question for you. Do you find, and I'm, I'm away from the game. I play in the, in what I call now the beer league and then in Lake Placid, but do you find that the goalie pockets are, are, are exceedingly deeper now than they ever were? And do you think that a, the question, two questions, one, do you believe they're doing that to control rebounds and B, do you think they negative that negatively impacts their ability to clear the ball? So there's no question the pockets are deeper. Uh, like, I mean, you look at a stick that I had strung up by, by this guy, Mr. Wonderful, um, out of Long Island, best stick stringer in the game, uh, way deeper than, than the pockets, but it, it throws beautifully. Um, mm. and, and for me, the only thing is like the release is not as quick, right? So like, I can't just do like a little, a little yeah. quick stick like that. I have to like bring it back a little bit, um, but I can throw dimes with it. And I can, I can cradle with it. And it also really, it really does help on rebounds. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I think that, um, what was the second part of the question? Like, yeah. No, the, the second, does it affect negatively affect? I think you answered both questions. It yes, it helps with rebounds and B it definitely has an adverse effect, but you're managing it through newer technology. and different Yeah. Ways. Yeah. And you watch guys like, uh, Brian Phipps is still, is still playing, is still playing pro. His is like, so like, let's say mine's like, I don't know, three, three and a half balls deep. His is like five balls deep. And like, in order to throw, you watch him throw, like he needs to like bring it back, like all the way back here and just launch it. So yeah, it does, like he loves it because it just eats up those rebounds. But it does, like, if you're going to make a save and want to do like a little quick pass, which a lot of yeah. times the young kids need to do that. Like, I wouldn't recommend that deep of a pocket for those for those youngsters um because they just don't have the strength to throw with that kind of stick but it's certainly like when you get to the college level like yeah i think i think playing with the deeper pocket it, it serves you better okay good yeah I, my generation was not like that because it was all about your hands and then you needed to be able to pass it to an attackman if you had to make a 60 yard pass yeah but but i agree the game's changed and the technology and the weight of the goalie stick has changed so you can get away with sort of a different, different type of scenario and construct. Right, right. I mean, these aren't the brine shotguns. Like these are, you know, the the STX Eclipse Two is just. A They're like Ferraris, you know. <laughs> All right, and you guys also played with those goalie shafts that were so long. I don't know if you watch current players play, but I played in the attack shaft. A lot of the guys are just putting the attack shaft on there uh, and playing that way. Yeah, yeah. I definitely, I definitely played with a shorter, shorter shaft just because of my height and such. But it was not uncommon to see a goalie play with a very long shaft yeah Clint did yeah. Clint, Clint had the long shaft um so I'd love to go back to kind of your story um you know you, you registered the freshman year um by your sophomore year you're starting and then so that would be your red shirt freshman year and then the, the year after that goalie of the year yeah yeah statistically my freshman year was my best year too I saved oh. like six, 63 percent of the saves and gave up less than like nine goals a game and that was a really proficient year um, yeah. So, uh, if you came from Mars and you watched game film, uh, not knowing who it was, you would look at that freshman year and say, Whoa, you know, like that's as, you know, that's pretty good. But I will say the, ch the dynamics change, right. You know, you go into your sophomore year, first team all American, your junior year, they're not shooting on man up from 16 anymore. You know, <laughs> they're not, they're not, they're, the, they're, they're scheming game plan to figure out how to have the best shooting scoring opportunities. When you're as a freshman, they're not thinking about the goalie. They're thinking about creating offense. So they're not scheduling, they're not, you know, they're designing plays, both offensive set plays and man down, et cetera, man up 
to maximize their scoring opportunity from a higher percentage position when you're an All-American versus when you're, uh, you know, your year away from, you know, your year removed from high school. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, so much goes into it too. I mean, do your defense, how good your defense is really impacts how good of a year the goalie can have. No well. doubt. Yeah, because no you're doubt. seeing all these low angle, you know, on the run shots, like, hey, those are easy, easier saves. And so I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about that because you know you, you go first team All American, second team All American, third team All American, which is still like an amazing accomplishment to be. Yeah. But I'm sure you know once you're first team All American, you're like, like I want, I want that first team All American again. So what do you think? You know, what do you think? How did that play out for yeah, you? Yeah, sure, sure. So my my junior year in 1999 was when I got second. I thought that was my best year. Mm. Yeah, well, it was our best team year. It was my best individual year. Um, my statistics weren't as strong, um, but uh, I certainly thought I deserved it that year, but an amazing goalie got it, J- uh, Mickey Jarbo, who's a great person and a great goalie. We remember, this is also 20 years ago, so we, play, we played against the best schedule in the country, and it wasn't really debatable. So we, we were like, you know, every week we played against a top 10 team. So we played against the best schedule in the country and it's impossible to save 65% of the save shots every single time you play, you know, a team that has three all Americans on the offense. Um, so as a goalie, it's, it's not that easy to do um, at Hopkins and to be recognized as a top three goalie for 75% of your career is pretty awesome. Yeah. My, you know, so that, that, and then our, my senior year, we really struggled in March we had a really rough start. I think we were one in three with, and the games, I think we, we had one close game in Syracuse. We got blown out against Princeton, blown out against Virginia. It was a really rocky start. Um, and you know, that can do you in, but you know, by the end of the year, we beat number two Loyola in the last season of the game. I had 27 saves. It was the most I've ever had, like played in the final four and had the, maybe the best game I've ever played. So I, I think as a goalie, and, you know, now they give it out to multiple goalies on different teams on, you know, and eight honorable mention guys. It was when I played, it was one, two, three, and one honorable mention. Mm, yeah. So, you know, to be recognized as a top three goalie, maybe two years was a coin toss in both directions. Right. I, I'm, you know, what else could I, you know, do? Yeah, great right. career. Yeah. Great yeah. career. Yeah. But yeah, I would, I'd say I, to answer your direct question, Freshman year, best statistical year in terms of like, if you watched me play most efficient, most effective sophomore year was sort of the most like kind of sensational with, like with, with big wins and big plays. My junior year was my best effort relative to the team that I played on mm-hmm. senior year, toughest start did us in great rebound and sort of a story kind of the way that, you know, follow the trajectory in my life sort of. Interesting. Yeah. I was going to ask you about, um, like Quint was a honorable first, first, and then maybe honorable. And, you know, that had nothing to do with Quint being good or bad. Right. Sure. Yeah. Like, you know, his freshman year, it could have been that his best season. He just didn't, he only played half of it. Yeah. I was going to ask you about going through a slump. Um, you know, it happens to every goalie. Um, you know, I'm sure you went through multiple slumps in your career. Maybe that senior year might've been the, the biggest, I don't know, but you know, when you go through a slump, uh, tell me about that. If, if, if one comes to mind and kind of how you, how you got out of it. Yeah. I, I, th- grateful. Thankfully, I never really went through a slump in York, uh, Yorktown or Hopkins, meaning I had games where we got pounded and I, you know, I saved 45% of the shots. 
not a, not often, but like there was probably two or three in my college career that we just got hammered and it just didn't feel right, you know? Um, and that's disappointing, but it was never more like a successive thing. When I played in the MLL my third year, I was definitely in a slump. It was the first year in which I started my professional career in real estate and I was not entirely focused and I wasn't putting in the time that that position requires, or at least it required from me and it showed. And the worst part about it was the mental aspect of it, because no matter whether or not it was physical saying, okay, tough game, move on with it. I'm the most prepared. I'm the hardest working guy on this team. It'll come back. I knew I couldn't answer those questions honestly and say yes. So it made me play worse, knowing that I didn't put in the time. In college, if I played a bad game, which thankfully was infrequently, I just worked harder on Monday, you know? Yeah. In that MLL season, I didn't have the opportunity to do so. So what I would tell the people that are playing in, you know, in a slump, I think it's important to just double down the effort, double down. When you're playing great, it's almost good just to it's like when I think about being in a good zone for a couple of weeks, it's like that feeling after you have one or two beers, you know, and you're just like, ah, the music sounds a little better. The food tastes a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're, you know, the laughs are a little louder, like enjoy that. Like don't grind, don't get back in there and take 300 shots. Like just be in the moment and sort of soak it all in when you're playing like crap, just pound it, man. Yeah. Get in the goal, you know, take more shots, you know, figure it out. Yeah. It'll click. It is a lesson that I, I, I ask young or a question I ask young goalies is like when they're going through a slump, it's like, I ask them, did you, did you, are you doing everything that you can do? Right. And a lot of times the answer is no. Yeah. Right. That was my, that was my answer in that year when I, I got pulled, I didn't even, I didn't start two, three games. It was like, yeah. I was like, my career's over. Like, it just passed the point in which I could no longer put the time in and dedicate myself towards being the best I could possibly could. And at that position, you yeah. just, there's no point in doing it anymore. Yeah. And it's, it's so different. Um, back then, I mean, lacrosse is not a career now it's, it's like becoming such as of now. And I hope that like, you know, more money comes into the sport and these guys can make a good living on it, you know, but it yeah. wasn't that way back, back then. Right. I mean, you got your job and you got your, you, you know, you got your lacrosse. Yeah. It was a life decision and right. I tried to do both for a year and it didn't work. <laughs> I wanted to ask you at the age of 40, you attempt a comeback. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to hear about this. You know, where did that idea come from? How many years were you out of the game? How did you go about getting back into, uh, into playing shape? Let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So I stopped playing at the age of 24. Um, I played three full seasons in the MLL. Um, and like I said, I made a decision in 2003 to go focus on my career, which I don't regret and had a, you know, it's been great. And, um, and those years in my mid twenties and then my thirties developing a business, um, were very productive for me. So I don't look back on a regret, but when I was in the late thirties, I had realized I was going to, from a physical standpoint and a health standpoint, I wasn't living my best life. You know, I was playing a lot of golf from a business standpoint, entertaining a lot, drinking, eating, gaining weight, you know, belonged to five gyms, didn't use any of them, Um, falling into like these, you know, uh, social and behavioral traps that aren't healthy for a lifestyle that you want to have that's productive and, 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 uh, and safe and fruitful. 
So I said, you know, and I was always somebody that if I put my mind to something, I could get a little obsessed about it and focus on it. But I had nothing to really goal for. So at the age of 39, I was like, I'm going to play. I'm going to get new lacrosse equipment. I went to Lacrosse Unlimited in Mount Kisco and spent like $800 on lacrosse equipment and played in what we call sort of the beer league, which is the over 30 adult league in White Plains. And the first game was sort of a disaster. And the second game was like a half disaster. And then by like the third and fourth game, I was like, holy shit, I could still save the ball. I can't move. I'm over 200 pounds and I'm, you know, I can't, you know, take me 10 minutes to run a mile. I was like, but I can see the ball. Like I can really see the ball. So I wondered to myself, you know, what can I do to motivate myself to get back to a playing shape and just play like play club and play summer league and Lake Placid again. And I put this goal together. I said, how about this? If I lose 25 pounds and get back to my college playing league, I'll even have the audacity to enter into the supplemental draft and take a flyer on whether or not I can do it. So I got a nutritionist and a trainer, a great friend of mine named Rob Anderson, um, who does an amazing job with a lot of athletes. And within four months, I cut all the weight and I was training hard. And I was, uh, I, I joined the staff as a volunteer assistant at Pace for Tom Mariano, who's a dear friend of mine, which is a mile from my home. And I would practice with their players in shooting drills and everything else. And I had flexible business hours, meaning I work 18 hours a day. I just don't work 18 hours of the day that everybody else does. You know, I focus on managing my schedule accordingly. So I had the time to do all these things. I made the time to do these things. And I was playing at a high level. So I said, okay, before I do anything crazy, that fall, I called up my friend, Brian Doherty, one of the greatest goalies of all time. And I said, can I come to Philadelphia? I knew he was the assistant coach at the Lizards. I said, and just call me crazy. Can we work out for an hour? And if you think I'm crazy, then you'll never hear about this dream again. And he's like, comes down. He was th- thought I was unrecognizable because I had gotten into really great fitness shape. It's 175 pounds. And he shot on me for an hour and we worked out hard. And he's like, you could do it. And I was like, all right. So I put my name in the supplemental draft. I was the last player selected in the supplemental draft. And I was the, uh, I went to tryouts and I thought I was the best goalie there, you know, and Drew Adams is a hall of famer and a legend. One of the best goalies ever. He's clearly better than me, but it was his like 10th season in the MLL. And he was like, you know, he wasn't on his a game in those tryouts. And I was coming in, like I was a, you know, a 15 year old and I played great. And I think, I know I earned my spot. Um, so it was an opportunity for me to transform some of my habits change my lifestyle, focus on a dream, give it, be an example for my kids. It was a summer. It wasn't, you know, a career and, uh, had a blast, had an absolute blast. I mean, it was like, I think I was the lowest paid player in the league. And we had this great game down in Atlanta against the team that had just beaten us the week before. And, uh, this, and Deemer class scored nine goals on us. And he was, on Instagram all week showing his highlights. And I was, I'm old school, you know, I grew up in an era where guys didn't like that, you know, right. and I got so fired up and I did led the hat, the pregame speech. And we went out there and we kicked their ass 
And we went out that night in Buckhead and I partied so hard and I had 20 of the guys with me and I spent my entire salary for that entire season one night. <laughs> yeah. So it was great. Worth yeah. it. Worth it. Right. Yeah. Eight bottles of tequila, private club service, the whole thing. There you go. Oh man. Well, that's, a, that's an amazing story. I'm, I'm 41 kind of inspires me to give it a go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I got my eyes checked and they were, they were perfect. So I said, all right, what's holding me back? You know, just yeah. reps. Oh, I love it. Um, I, I know you got to run in a bit yeah. and, and thank you so much for, for taking the time. You, you got like time for like five more minutes. A couple, I gotta, yeah, let's do it. Well, I got to leave at 11. So this is perfect. Okay. All right. Perfect. Um, I just want to hit real quickly on, on the mental game. It's such a yeah. big, it's such a big piece of what we do. It sounds like you've got this confidence, like, you know, going into that MLL game, it wasn't these thoughts of like, am I good enough? Like, do I deserve to be here? It was the exact opposite. You're like, I'm the best goalie out here. Where does that confidence come from? And how can a goalie like develop that? Yeah. Um, great question. No, no answer. Right. You know, it's everyone's brain works differently and every trigger for somebody to, you know, reach their best version of themselves, either physically or mentally um, is different for me. It was all about the work you know, um, and I knew that if I had put the time in, um, I, I sort of could judge my play versus what the level was going to be like. And I knew that if I was prepared and I put the time in and the work, it didn't matter if they scored five goals in a row. I was ready to move on to the sixth shot, you know, because I was like, look, this happens to everybody. It's going to happen to me. I'm the, you know, it happens to Brian Doherty. It happens to Larry Quinn. Right. So my whole thought process around being mentally tough was never really focusing too much on what just happened. And always, I mean, my favorite word in the, in the vocabulary of goalkeeping is next. It's, it's like, I think every goalie should paint those four letters on their bedroom wall. Mm -hmm. And if you're thinking negatively, now think productive, positively about things that have happened. How did I do? What did I do wrong? What can I do better? What move did I make that I did? I should have made. Tell, talk to yourself out loud. Teach, coach yourself through those things that have happened. But if you're using that, and if it's impacting you negatively, wrong. Um, everything I think about from the standpoint of being goalie is next. You know, always thinking about what's the next opportunity. Is it the next possession, or is the game over? Is it the next practice? So I think about my confidence comes from thinking about the ability to. Uh, you know, to focus on what's next. And the other thing, which is unique to me, not unique to me, it's, it worked for me because I had the ability, despite not having a great day in the goal, I always felt that I can contribute outside the goal. So I felt that if there's a day where I'm only saving 50% of the shots, I better be clearing hundred percent of the time. I better steal three possessions for my team by diving out of bounds or getting a loose ball. There are other ways to be contribute, you know, to contribute. And I felt that if I could do those things on those days, everything was going to be fine. Love it. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time and, and sharing your stories. Uh, that was amazing. If, if you had to leave the kids out there with a final piece of advice, what, uh, what would you say? Hmm. Play with courage, be courageous, be courageous. Love it. It's, it's a very hard position that requires a lot of courage. And if you could be courageous, whether you're down by five or up by 10, whether you can die for a loose ball when you're tired or whether you can clear the ball and 
communicate for that defenseman that needs you, whether those things that require you to go above and beyond your comfort zone, you know, in a positive way, to me, that's courage. And if you could be courageous, you're going to be fine. Love it. Brian, thank you so much. All right, brother. Take care, man. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Brian Carcaterra. Awesome stuff. Amazing stories he has. Incredible to hear his story of attempting a comeback at the age of 40. I'm now 41. Got me fired up to do a comeback. Although I was never at the top, so I don't know if a comeback is the right word. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode. We got the Lacrosse Goalie Summit 7 going on. Starts next week. 20 of the best lacrosse goalie coaches will be gathering to give you virtual lacrosse goalie training sessions over Zoom. So it's June 27th, Monday, June 27th through July 1st, four sessions a day, and each coach is going to be giving you a virtual coaching session for about an hour over Zoom, all virtual, so you can attend no matter where you are in the world. You're going to level up your lacrosse goalie game with the best coaches absolutely free to attend live free ticket go to goaliesummit.com put in your name and your email and then you'll start getting the zoom webinar links next week okay goaliesummit.com there you go hope to see everyone next week in the meantime get out there get some work in do well and be well i'm coach damon take care You've been listening to the Lax Goalie Rat Podcast with your host, Coach Damon Wilson.